You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Body IO FM. I'm your host, Kiefer, and your co host, Dr. Rocky Patel. Hey, Kiefer. And today we've got on in studio, actually, um, kind of a special guest. He's going to be a regular part of the show. What we're going to do today, are, I'll introduce him here in a second. His name's Alex Moore. But what we're going to try to do once a month or once every six weeks is collect some of the more interesting articles that are around the web. So, you know, if somebody writes an article about butter or cream in their coffee or things like that, uh, we're going to actually go through and do a research review and try to put all that into context for everybody, especially the ones that are a little bit more light on the science or light in understanding of the author. Uh, and that's, that's why we have Alex on the show, because he's actually a researcher. He's working on his PhD thesis at Arizona State University. So I'll let Alex introduce himself a little bit and give what his uh, background is and his current research. So thanks for coming in and doing the show, Alex. Thank you for having me. So my background, I got my undergrad and my master's degree at uh, UNLV. That's the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. My research there was primarily in vitamin D. We actually did some studies on athletes and triathletes there. And uh, currently at ASU, I'll be looking at uh, postprandial responses in lipemia. So that, that obviously will be very pertinent for a, a lot of the topics I cover, the diets I come up with, and also helping to break down uh, the validity of U.S. dietary recommendations. So, you know, Alex is uh, very well versed in the research, but even more importantly, he understands the experimental protocols. He's had experience with those so he can help break down uh, exactly what's being said in the article and its utility too. Um, and also he has a good grasp on which journals have impact factors. So for example, one that we'll be going over today, which has a very low impact factor. Right, right. So certain journals out there actually, you know, they're more for their members of their organization than they are, than they do make an impact on the scientific community. So by that, if you are published in the New England Journal of Medicine, your paper is going to have a very big impact because it's a very well-respected, very well-read and cutting-edge journal. If your article is in the Journal of International Sport, yeah, J-I-S-S-N, <laughs> yeah. um, which you know some, some uh, celebrity health people have published in recently, your paper is probably not going to have much impact at all in the scientific community. Uh, that journal's more for their members and to try to keep their members educated. So, you know, it, it, it'll definitely, these shows should be really interesting. Uh, we'll try not to make them too science-y, but uh, at the end of every show, you'll, you'll be able to pull out some utility and at least be able to look through some of the BS that's out there on a lot of these web articles. Does that sound good to everybody? Rocky, awesome. Are you, okay. I want to make sure you're still there, Rocky. You're awfully quiet this morning. Like always. I'm always quiet, right? I know. So we're going to start this morning. You, why don't uh, you give the lead, on a, lead in on this one, Rocky, since you don't ever talk that much? 
Um, so this is an article um, It was published in a journal of lipid research. It was called Coordinated Release of Acylation Stimulating Protein and tri tri uh, Triglycerides Clearance by Human Adipose Tissue in Vivo in the Postprandial Period. So what was interesting about this study was they actually – you want me to go ahead and well, continue? Well, now let's talk about – first, uh, we, we found this. I wanted to give this one context. Uh, we found sure. this on Carb Sane's website, which I don't know the URL, and it's not that important. Uh, you can go hunt her down if you want, but she is in hardcore against this uh, hypothesis, this insulin hypothesis slash low carbohydrate diets are more healthy. I mean, she's she's actually, I mean, it's a good name because she's somewhat insane in that direction. Uh, and we found this article. She she did her own personal review of this article on her website and used it to trash Gary Tobbs and say that basically he was an idiot. And if he would read papers like that, that he, you know, he would understand that his position is completely wrong. But when you read the paper, we've got a particularly different uh, synopsis of the research there. So go ahead, Rocky. So uh, it was interesting. What they did was uh, for the first time, they actually did a study in humans so when you look at studies, it can be in vitro, which is like you can think of that in the lab or in a petri dish. In vivo would be in live subjects. So for the first time, um, this, this research group uh, was able to show the effect of this ASP protein. And they did it by – it was a small study. So they only had, I think, um, 12, 12 subjects. And, and the other issue was that they, it varied in size. So the BMIs went anywhere from – 19 and a half up to 52.8. So, um, so it was a yeah. heterogeneous population. The discrepancy um, was, and, yeah, the, I I'm think so, this is actually a very, um, poorly powered study. I mean, the, the discrepancy in age BMI, um, it, it was just, I think in that regard, fairly poorly designed. So you have right, to tread, you right, have to age, tread very lightly. Ages went, yeah. Yeah. Ages went from 18 to 70. So it was a pretty, like I said, like you say, it was a heterogeneous population. So um, the data, I think, um, although consistent, um, you know, you had to kind of take that with a grain of salt as well. It was an arteriovenous study. So what they did is they, they were able to cannulate um, the vasculature, the arteries and vein, and um, look at a specific bed. And in this case, looked at the adipose tissue, the abdomen. So they took blood samples after patients were given a meal. Now, uh, albeit the meal was mixed, so it had about 60 grams of fat and 85 grams of carbohydrates and only 13 grams of protein. And so what they did was they took samples um, post-meal at 0, 30, 60, 90 minutes, as well as 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 hours. And what they looked at was the gradient of changes in different markers, including um, triglyceride, uh, free fatty acid, uh, chylomicron, uh, triglyceride, um, and ASP activity. And what they found was that um, you saw this increase in – so you need – ASP is this kind of three-protein complex that helps um, with fat storage in the adipose tissue in the fat cell. And um, what they found was that this ASP protein, interestingly enough, over the first two hours decreased – but then correspondingly went up um, in, in the blood samples. And what they found also was there was a corresponding um, increase in triglyceride 
store um, removal from the blood, so fat storage, um, as well as a significant um, um, uh, what they found was I'm just trying to do the paper, look at the different graphs. Sorry, um, what they found was there's a corresponding um, increase with insulin. And they found that when you, uh, although the chylomicron was a predominant factor in the fat storage, that really insulin amplified the effect by about threefold. Um, I think the interesting finding that I think Carbstein was trying to go after was that um, if you looked at the um, fatty acid incorporation into adipose tissue, um, in the first hour to two hours, there was actually a outflux of fat before the influx came in. So the main point of her blog was that that if this insulin hypothesis was so correct, um, then why is it during the first two hours of meal when insulin is at the highest point, do you see an outflow of fat, not an influx of fat into the adipose tissue? Right. So, <clears throat> and you know, the, th those are one thing I want to talk about is you know it sounds like this was really hard to measure or figure out, but you know it was I thought it was cleverly done their procedure at least. Because what they looked at was the influx of non-astrophied fatty acids into the adipose bed and then the outflux. Uh, so, you know, what you would see pre, you know, in that first two-hour window is you would see uh, a certain level of non-astrophied fatty acid go into the adipose bed. And coming out was actually a higher level, which meant that the triglycerides were being broken down and released from fat cells and you got a slightly higher fatty acid concentration. And then several hours later, you saw the opposite, uh, the non-esterified non fatty acids going into the adipose bed uh, was greater than what was coming out. So you could assume that there was a net accretion of fat within, within the adipose bed. And, um, you know, the, the argument Carbsane had really centered around the idea that any effect in the body, especially of insulin, let's say, is going to only be an acute effect, uh, which means it's going to happen right away and it's not going to contribute anything downstream or at a larger time or a longer time sequence, which we know is absolutely false. False. I can see on Alex's face he wants to, yeah. wants to jump was, in. I was actually going to say that most Americans, their waking hours are actually spent in the, in the post-absorptive state. So, I mean, you have to take that into context as well. Right. So post, post-absorptive state. Postprandial. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what we're talking about is after you've eaten and absorbed a lot of the nutrients. Um, and, you know, if, if you put this study in context, A, we've got a couple things. Uh, it did show very high correlation with uh, chylomicron in, uh, levels. And what's interesting about that and where Alex is particularly useful here is we don't see large sur large surges in postprandial lipemia except in deranged individuals. Um, so you know this population was very small, and we had a couple people, especially the younger ones, uh, that were in the healthy BMI range. We don't have enough data on them. We don't have DEXA scans. So example, we found that many Americans, especially younger women and the younger population with the healthier BMI. In this study, we're female. Uh, we know it's actually a prevalent condition to have uh, sarcopenic obesity, which means their BMI comes out totally normal and healthy, but they actually hold much less muscle mass than they do body fat. Uh, so I think that's a very big confounding factor here. 
that what we could have is actually an entire population. There's only 12 people that all have some sort of metabolic derangement that would cause this postprandial hyperlipemia that then could uh, upregulate ASP to an even greater effect than the insulin had. I would have also liked to have seen, because I believe this was subcutaneous fat, I would like to have yes. seen visceral. Yeah, which is the more, more deadly one. Um, but again, what this study says, you know, if you want to look at it from a physiological perspective instead of a speculative perspective, is that your greatest chances of becoming fat are if you have a high insulin load followed by a high postprandial lipemia. And that, that right there is an excellent description of what happens to people if they're already metabolically deranged. So what this study says is once you've already screwed up, you're accelerating the process. Um, and, and A, or, and B, the, the study actually supports the insulin hypothesis. I mean, you get a massive increase in acylating protein with insulin induction. So these mixed meals were actually the perfect storm of how to store more body fat. And that was completely missed by carb saying, you know, what would be interesting to see is in an in vivo study of uh, ASP activation in a ketogenic state, which, you know, as far as I know, I haven't seen. Right. Plus, you have to remember that chylomicrons are actually very short lived. So really, you have to have insulin in place to really activate LPL to have substantial storage. Right. And the, the paper did recognize that. But she didn't. Yeah. Yes, even, <laughs> even though the paper didn't find a high correlation between LPL and as high of a correlation between LPL and ASP, they still recognize that that is a very important effect. So, you, you know, if, if you really understood the physiology of the body, which I'm not saying carpsane doesn't, she might have very specifically chosen what she talked about from this paper. But if you have a strong physiological understanding of a healthy body versus a sick body, you would read this paper and say, oh my gosh, this, this tells us nothing about how they got sick, but it tells us that once somebody's sick, eating mixed meals and having an insulin load followed by hyper, uh, hyperlipemia is going to make you fatter faster than you were able to do before. And that may be what we see. You know, we're seeing levels of people, and I've talked about this before, fatter than we ever have in history. And if it's an accelerative process, meaning the fatter you get, the faster you can get fatter. That would help to explain why we're seeing this epidemic of obesity and also why we're reaching fat body fat levels that we never could reach in the past. And co-contaminant with type 2 diabetes, which is what a lot of this research looks into, a lot of this uh, post-absorptive research. Yeah, so to take this back to, to uh, the, I was actually looking at this uh, insulin curve in the, in the study on figure three. Um, so even though um, there is that um, negative influx of fat into the fat tissue within the first hour or two when insulin is at its highest point, if you look at the insulin curve and the area under the curve, it's still quite high for insulin between two hours and three hours. And that does correlate um, with the increased activity of ASP as well. Um, so I think that's something to keep in mind. I think what you said about for about the sarcopenic female patient, you know, those are the patients that have visceral fat. And then I come back clinically, um, that postprandial lipemia is one of the biggest risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So, um, you know, clinically, if you're seeing your doctor, 
um, and they want to do a fasting lipid panel on you, um, you know, that's great. But uh, what I, one of the things I utilize in my practice is if a patient comes into my office and they're not fasting, I'll actually still draw their lipid panel because if they've got a really high triglyceride count in a, in a non-fasting state, jig is up, right? You know, um, that's another way you can find that metabolically deranged patient. Right. And everybody keep in mind, we have a massive amount of research showing that you do not get high triglyceride, postprandial high triglyceride or high cholesterol levels after a ketogenic meal. And this is within just a few days of making that switch. So in other words, simply by going ketogenic, you have short-circuited this entire fat storage process. So not only have you taken the insulin component away, you've taken the ASP component away, and you've taken the LPL component away. You've pretty much wiped everything out by being ketogenic. And this is generally accepted. A lot of researchers will and are willing to make the correlation that they can tell what a patient's postprandial cholesterol or postprandial lipemia levels will be based on the total amount of carbohydrate in their diet. Uh, th this is a generally accepted statement. And of course, unfortunately, from there, they say, well, the way to fix it is to just not eat any fat or cholesterol, and then it can't happen, uh, which is still not true. But that's the way they try to fix it. They have, they kind of think about it in the wrong way. Um, and, and the ketogenic diet is so powerful that it actually has these corrective effects regardless of body fat loss. So you can see these effects in a very, very short amount of time, which I, I would think to any, anybody with some sort of sensibility or understanding of the physiological processes would raise an eyebrow and say, okay, carbohydrates seem like the most likely candidate. And nobody here, not even Gary Tobbs is saying, absolutely, carbohydrates are the problem. What everybody is saying, including myself, is that from Everything that we know, carbohydrates appear, appear to be the culprit. And we have a lot of research to back that up. And we just want more research. That's it. You know, the obvious elephant in the room is carbohydrates right now. Uh, and, you know, these efforts by Alan Aragon, CarbSane, um, the guys over at examine.com, you know, their efforts are really to confuse people between the difference between a physiological basis and a scientific basis. And just to clear that up, we know a lot about the physiology of the body. We, we have facts about how the body responds to certain hormones, certain dietary components. We have a lot of facts. Um, a scientific basis is, well, we found some of these research studies and that could support our position, therefore our position is scientific. You know, there's a very, very big difference there. And that's why all my protocols, I try to base on physiological principles that we know for a fact. Um, and this was a very, very good example of somebody taking a study that elucidated s several physiological parameters. So it, it did show us exactly how the body works, but then certain things were cherry picked out of it to make it look like carbohydrates have no effect whatsoever. Um, but she was able, still able to pretend her position was scientific. And, and that's the problem with a lot of research is it basically becomes this resource, this grab bag, this, this grab bag that, uh, you know, people just reach into and pull whatever they want. But you have to take everything into context. And that's something that I think a lot of these authors and, and these, these bloggers are missing. Yeah. Um, so I 
think that's everything we have to say about that paper and, you know, putting it in context and perspective uh, for, you know, everybody. Gary Tobbs, Carbsane, um, you know, everybody on both sides of the fence should really understand what, that's, what that study is saying. All right, so we're on to our, our next. Did anybody have any closing comments on that one? I really like that study. It was kind of very cool how they did it. So, I mean, yeah, it'd I be too. nice if they picked a more, a more homogenous population, though. Um, so it would be nice to see it in, done in lean people uh, with normal BMI and then, in these, and then do it in an obese population to see what if there is a difference. Well, I would have really liked to have seen, instead of going off of BMI, I would have liked to have seen DEXA scans. I would have liked to have known what their percent body fat was and the distribution. Uh, I think that would have been very useful. I think this is entire, oh, yeah, for an, sure. entire vein of research. So, I mean, you could go in multiple directions with it, and I think people are so currently. Yeah, it's a good starting point. Uh, and their procedure, I thought, was, was clever and excellent, uh, which is, you know, something that later studies can utilize. So I think we're on to our next subject. You want to, uh, oh yeah. So we're going to talk about ketosis and, uh, you know, obviously ketone production because what has been reported back to me from the wild, and that's what I mean, people using carbonite and, uh, carb backloading on their own, particularly carbonite. I'm going to focus on carbonite because it, sh- it is and sh- would be the more ketogenic of the two diets. Uh, we're getting reports of people who should be extremely ketogenic, um, even to the point of going without carbs for two weeks to get their ketone levels up. And we're seeing their levels hit about, you know, between 0.3 and 0.9, which, uh, and that's, is that nanomoles per liter, I believe? Is the I think it's millimoles. Is it millimoles? <clears throat> okay, millimoles per liter. Um, and that's what we see from somebody eating a carbohydrate-based diet. Um, basically, that's your standard level of ketone production. And we're seeing this after two weeks of what should be a highly ketogenic environment. Um, and it takes a lot of effort to get those levels, say, up to, you know, one or two, which is still no, nowhere near starvational ketosis or nutritional ketosis. You know, we want to see those levels between three and five and maybe as high as eight. Uh, and, and it's just, it's not happening. So that kind of brought in an interesting, some, some interesting questions about why would that be? And I stumbled onto a paper discussing the ketogenic diet, and that's one I'm not, probably the one we're least familiar with because we uh, pulled these articles pretty, pretty quickly before this podcast. And what it showed is that basically there's two effects here. So a ketogenic diet, interestingly, shuts down the mTOR pathway. And that's the mammalian target of rapamycin. If you've read any of my stuff or you've heard my podcast, you've heard me talk about it often because it's an important part of the chain of events that are necessary to grow new tissue. And that's any new tissue. And it turns out it's a very, very important pathway to grow muscle mass. So mTOR is upregulated whenever you do any type of resistance training, which allows your muscles to then do all the downstream processes to get bigger and stronger. Um, we know that insulin can trigger mTOR activation, which is why carbohydrates used appropriately can help 
with muscle gains. Uh, we also know that leucine is an independent trigger of the mTOR pathway. That's why leucine supplementation can help trigger mTOR and then also cause increased muscle growth and uh, performance from your training. And nicotine is another independent regulator, which is often seen as a negative thing because nicotine use during cancer would actually help cancer cells to grow more. Nicotine use before you have cancer uh, can actually help muscular gains. So, you know, we, we know this mTOR pathway is incredibly important and it's incredibly important to have it upregulated. And that's why I'm against intermittent fasting. If you fast for too long, if you fast for normal than that eight hours at night, um, 12 hours is about as long as you can go before you'll suppress mTOR activation. So again, you need to introduce food in there. And that's why I don't like intermittent fasting. It's not a protocol you could use to gain muscle mass, despite a lot of uh, false claims across the intermittent fasting community. So mTOR is an incredibly important pathway for muscular growth. And knowing that a ketogenic diet can downregulate mTOR and suppress it tells us immediately that we also can identify people who are falsely giving advice that a ketogenic can produce gains in muscle mass. It's very, very unlikely, especially if you're lean. I know one person in particular, you know, has a diet that's essentially a clone of, car it is a clone of carb night actually. And I also know that they take massive amounts of anabolic drugs, but they don't mention that in their book. They claim you can use this ketogenic diet to get huge and ripped and you can't. You know, I've said that about carb, carb night hundreds of times, and that's why I've come up with carb backloading uh, to help us figure that out. So it's very interesting to me that the ketogenic diet itself is, is you know, limiting muscular gains. But beyond that, uh, I started digging into it deeper, and we found a really interesting paper on mTOR activation in the liver and the necessity of mTOR to be activated in order to produce ketones. It seems to be an independent modulator of ketone production. So we have this really interesting feedback loop that when you first go on a ketogenic diet, you can go ketotic. And we've seen that usually people, when they first go on carbonite for the first time, they get really great results. Um, they can smell the ketones in their urine and in their breath. But later on, when they have been on carbonite for long periods of time, they're having trouble getting their ketone levels up. And that's what could be happening. What we're seeing is a decrease in mTOR activation because of the diet itself. And unfortunately, in the liver, mTOR needs to be activated in order to produce ketones at a high rate. So we have this really interesting paradox going on here. Um, and a paradox that supports the use of a diet like carbonate over trying to be constantly ketogenic because you can get reactivation of that pathway by introducing insulin periodically. And I'm not sure how often that needs to happen. Um, and it could be different case by case. Uh, but, but that would be a necessary component to keep high, high ketone production, particularly in athletics. So um, any, anybody else want to contribute on that? Subject, you guys. I think you're doing. I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. 
Well, you know, I, I guess the question I would have um, would be if a ketogenic diet um, suppresses mTOR activity, right? Most patients who are doing carbonite are probably, and we know that resistance training increases mTOR activity. Um, you know, pa most patients, most people who are doing carbonite are typically training or using shockwave or something to that effect. Um, how does, what would that interaction be and what has the greater force? Is it the tr exist resistance training? And obviously that would depend on the amount of force you're producing and, and such uh, versus the diet itself and that yin and yang that goes on while you're doing carbonite and resistance training. Well, there's, there's obviously multiple pathways to activate it. So, I mean, classically what you're talking about is insulin activating AK, AKT, right? Yeah. That that's what we so that right. other paper that the other paper that we have with going over phosphatidic acid it seems to be independent of that and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. So, it, and and that's another question. So when you do resistance training, uh, you definitely get upregulation of mTOR in the muscle. We, I don't currently know of any studies that look at that in a ketogenic environment. Does a ketogenic environment still allow uh, mTOR activation? with resistance training. I don't know if you know, it's, it's so preliminary at this point. Okay. We don't have anything. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, this is, we need mTOR activation in the liver. Uh, so even if resistance training does up, upregulate mTOR at the skeletal muscle tissue level, that still may not affect liver level. Although it, it should, because we normally see ketones rise with any type of exercise, uh, which means there should be some activation there. But I don't think there's any reason to say there has to be. My, my biggest, I, I, I'm just going along the lines that I think that the biggest modulator is going to be diet at this point. But again, the research is just not there. Right. Diet's something you're doing all day, every day that has continuous effects versus the acute effects. Now, what I found interesting about the mTORC study was the way they looked at it. So unfortunately, it was in mice. And one reason they had to do that is one way you would conceivably check this out is to just create mice that don't even have the mTOR pathway. Um, the problem is if you do that and they have done that, the mice just die. They can't live without that growth regulator. Um, so that tells you the importance of that mTOR pathway. It's very important just to living. So what they did was they created mice that overcompensate by activating other genes that suppress mTOR. So essentially the body is continuously uh, producing chemicals that don't allow mTOR to be uh, in these mice. They, it doesn't allow mTOR to activate. And in those environments, they were able to very clearly define the, the pathways that mTOR affects on ketogenesis or, um, you know, basically diverting nutrients into a more lipogenic pathway instead of a ketogenic pathway. Those branch points happen at the same point if Essentially, if mTOR is activated and insulin is low, then nutrients can be shuttled into ketogenic pathways, and that includes um, byproducts or down, downstream products from carbohydrates and fatty acids can both be shuttled into the ketogenic pathway. Uh, if insulin is present or mTOR is suppressed, then those nutrients can go into the lipogenic pathway. So, you know, my take is this gives us a clue of what could be happening in that population has a really hard time getting their ketogenic levels up or ketone levels up. And it really brings to bear what's more important. Is it more important to have high ketone levels or is it more important to have low insulin levels? 
I think you have to put it into context, right? Explain, expand on that. Well, I mean, if you're going from performance-based rather than, say, pure weight loss, which I think most people are going from that as- to that aspect. Right, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Ketones can have, you know, all kinds of benefits during athletic competitions. And it, training, you could argue one way or another, but during athletic competitions, it could be a huge advantage. For those who are just trying to focus on health and body composition, I'm starting to, you know, really question how important ketone levels are. They, we know they correlate with a lot of things and we know they help a lot of processes like, you know, Alzheimer's. It can help to clean out the plaques that form in neurons. But the question is, how did those plaques get there? You know, the, the plaques, the current evidence seems to be that insulin interferes with a lot of the uh, transcriptional processes in neurons. So that's the copying of DNA, making new cells, staying healthy, uh, cleaning those cells up. Insulin interferes with that. So what we might be seeing in this research that is that insulin has done a lot of damage on these people and ketones can help the body to work better now that the damage is already done. I would also say cancer. This has um, application yes. cancer, yeah. you know, particularly when we tie in this to apoptosis. Right. We've discussed that with uh, Dr. D'Agostino from yeah, Florida, where, where we see that cancer cells become pretty much the mitochondria has become sick and shut down. The oncogenes have upregulated, which when the oncogenes are turned on, essentially it shifts the entire metabolism of the cell to glycolytic. It no longer uses the oxidative pathway. So, and ketones cannot be pushed through the glycolytic pathway. It's just not possible. So then the cancer cells can start to essentially starve and go into a metabolic stress. This also has implications into atherosclerosis because I know that acetoacetate actually quenches peroxynitrate, which is extremely atherogenic to endothelial tissue. So, you know, basically what we're saying here is that ketones may be a treatment for a lot of these diseases, but why do those diseases exist in the first place? And again, from all the other research, you know, we just hinted at that, you know, the culprits seem to be insulin and carbohydrates that made people sick in the first place. And ketones and high ketone levels might just be an adjunct to help mitigate some of that damage that we've already done. So, you know, it's still, you know, to me, if you use a low carbohydrate, high fat, medium protein diet, you're going to make yourself healthier, period. And you will get an initial surge in ketones, which can help to speed up that process of getting healthier. It's funny because ketones almost seem kind of analogous to like a medication. <laughs> yeah, they, they really are starting to. And that's- So it. I wonder- Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I wonder then in these subpopulations that are unable to get adequate ketone levels, whether they're a, a performance um, subset of population or just a regular Joe on the street, that subset wonder if they would benefit from them maybe taking a ketone salt. Um, and that would be the population that might benefit from those products. Those are fairly expensive, are they not? They are. but, yeah. I, but that, And that's why I don't think they're widely used, but but now you've kind of pinned it down to a subset of population. It's not going to be everybody because, you know, but it might be that might be a, a, a place where that might be used and you're targeting it. So you're going to get the benefit hopefully of but, that use. But, but it could not be just modulated through diet? 
to the same effect? Well, so far, I mean, this, this unfortunately is a mouse study that's just backed up with what they see in people. Uh, the older you get, the less mTOR activation there is. So there, there could be a population that cannot modulate it with diet. Well, at, least, is what this at least continuously, maybe intermittently? Possibly. You know, it, it depends on, so as you age, uh, mTOR activation decreases, period. Um, and it's very, very hard to modulate with diet. So that downregulates. So the older you get, you, you might not be able to get these higher ketone levels. It may be very difficult. You may have to do starvational ketosis, like attempt to do it that way. Um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, right now we're just speculating because we don't, we don't have the research. This is pretty new stuff, and I didn't find a lot, unfortunately, to help us really answer the questions, just kind of speculate at the moment. Dr. Patel, do you know where those, those uh, ketone salts are actually isolated from? I'm just curious why they are so expensive. You know, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I haven't really looked into it. I know there's one product that you can purchase. Uh, I think they're out of Florida. I, I think uh, D'Agostino uh, works with them as well, but that's the only commercial product that I know of, but I'm not sure how they produce it. I'm just looking because I saw in one of these papers it was interesting. Um, it, it was the one we were just discussing with mTOR. There it is. So what they used to show that if you introduce, instead of ketone salts, so what they showed was that um, M mTOR... This was a great study because they deactivated so many pathways and then tested various routes to getting ketone production. And one that they found that was preserved even with mTOR downregulation was giving a sodium salt of a fatty acid. Do you guys remember reading that? Mm -mm. Which was specifically what fatty acid? Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, like octuinate, sodium octuinate. So instead of a ketone salt, what they used was a very specific fatty acid salt, which I did actually look up, and it can be used as a food additive, and it didn't seem very expensive. Um, but basically, the fatty acid they used uh, is one of the few that can bypass those pathways and go straight into ketogenic pathways. And what they found was that even with mTORC downregulated, um, supplementing with this fatty acid salt actually raised ketone levels. So we could, we could actually get this effect without using the ketone salts that are so expensive. And I, I'm trying to look. We may have to post the specific name of that. I must have missed it. I don't, I don't see it. Um, anyway, you guys talk for a second. I'll look for it. So, so uh, Dr. Patel, what, what generally the populations that you're dealing with, what, when are you prescribing a ketogenic diet? Um, well, you know, the interesting thing about it is, is most patients who think they are relatively healthy tend to have some form of insulin resistance. So, uh, the kind of general number I kind of state is that probably about 80% of the patients coming through my door when they're screened, uh, appropriately, um, they're fine. They, they have some form of insulin resistance. So I, I think just because the way our population is in, uh, in terms of obesity, um, being so overweight. I think a ketogenic type of diet, um, whether it's uh, a carb night or maybe going in and out of ketosis every once in a while, could apply to a majority of the population. And I think that's the thing that I see. And obviously, the insulin resistance that I see is one of the root causes that I go after for cardiovascular disease. And that's why, you know, doing things like looking at ketogenic diets and, and recommending for my patients um, 
It's one of the things I try to convey to patients. Um, and when those that take me up on it, um, they really get incredible results. I was talking to Kiefer about um, at a patient that was referred to me by one of the local cardiology groups, and she had um, she overweight, difficulty losing weight, um, fatigue, tired, um, just horrible metabolic panel in terms of her lipids and her advanced lipid studies and her insulin levels. Um, we put her on carbonate actually, and within three months, um, she basically reversed everything. It was amazing. So, um, and, and like I said, like triglycerides dropped by a hundred points, LDL particle dropped by a number dropped by about 500 points. Um, her markers of inflammation corrected, um, you know, hemoglobin A1C, obviously marker of, um, long-term glycemic control are, improved. Are using, uh, sorry to interject, are you using CRP for... For inflammation? So CRP, LP, PLA2, and myeloperoxidase, and we also use fibrinogen levels. So CRP and fibrinogen tend to be um, acute phase reactants. Um, they're relatively nonspecific, so, um, but we can follow those along. Um, so, her, so her fibrinogen normalized. Her CRP, um, although it's close to a normal range for what most physicians look for, um, it wasn't like in the optimal range quite yet, what I recommend. And then her LPPLA2, which is a uh, marker for vascular inflammation, normal was normal. And her amyloperoxidase, which is another marker for vulnerable plaque, was in a normal range as well. So um, it's pretty amazing what these diets can do. Um, and this was, uh, uh, we made no change in her med medical, re medical um, in her medicines that she was taking. So uh, everything was, all they did was change her diet. And so she was able to go back to her, it was cool, she went back to her cardiologist with the report. And they uh, actually cut a couple of medications down by 50%. So uh, yeah. but it's very applicable to the general population. Yeah, these are pretty powerful. And I, I just went through this study again. Um, and they did find that even with mTOR suppressed, fasting, uh, if you fasted the animal long enough, they could actually start to produce ketones again. So that's maybe how you have to modulate it is long-term fasting, which, um, you know, we obviously don't always want to recommend that. But the salt they used was sodium octanoate. So that was a fatty acid salt that can increase ketone levels rather rapidly. And even with mTOR suppressed, using that fatty acid salt still allowed ketone levels to come up. So, and like I said, you can find that as a food ingredient. So that might be a way to circumvent these more expensive ketone products and ketone esters that might be coming out and supplement with something that's just going to up ketone levels through normal metabolic pathways. But I think you should, at this point, oh, oh. we're just speculating. Yeah, well, yeah. Wait, what are we speculating on? I mean, to, act, I mean, act, to actually start prescribing like dosages and Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, yeah. I don't know what dosages yeah. would be or anything like that. We so just tread lightly there. Right. We just know that it could. And that's why I said, you know, it's a possibility to replace these things. Because if the levels are too high, that's going to be too much sodium. Uh, then we're going to have to balance it out with a lot of other stuff, which is the problem with those ketone salt formulations that we have right now. Hopefully it doesn't taste like leucine. Yeah, you know, that, that one's still, <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss that another time. But, you know, I have no problem <laughs> with the taste of leucine, but some people do. It's, it's very odd. Um, but, but leucine could, could have other problems. And w unfortunately, we're going we're gonna to try to stick on track here and move on to our next you know, research study. And, you know, the points from that one are some people may have a problem where they, they cannot increase ketone levels. It will be very difficult to almost impossible to, to do diet based 
uh, ketosis. Um, but that can be circumvented with fasting, which will reactivate that pathway. And there may be other novel ways to do that. So, you know, ketone, you know, keep your ketone levels in perspective. They may not be the best indicator of whether you're succeeding or failing. All right. Uh, why don't you introduce this next paper, Alex? This is uh, right up your alley. So this was uh, genetic predisposition and increasing dietary fructose exposure, the perfect storm for fatty liver disease in Hispanics in the United States. And I actually think that was pretty well worded as far as the perfect storm, because what we're finding is Hispanics have about a fivefold higher risk for developing liver cancer. So what they're finding is that they actually might have this mutation in the patatine-like phospholipase domain-containing protein 3 gene. So this encodes for adiponeutrin. That's a uh, triglyceride lipase that is involved in energy balance, um, specifically in adipocytes. So this can predispose one to increase de novo lipogenesis and fatty liver disease. So when you get... So we, we need to clarify some of these terms. De novo lipogenesis is essentially the uh, assembly and uh, creation of fatty acids and triglycerides, cholesterol, things like that. And usually a... That should be enough clarification yeah. for this. So you get you get these massive increases in palmitate, which is heavily tied to the development of dyslipidemia and insulin resistance uh, in this population that consumes a lot of sugar. In fact, um, the um, per, per capita income quoted in this paper for as far as consumption of Coca-Cola products was a little old. So I just looked up uh, Coca-Cola's consumer report. So let me see these numbers here. They are consuming in Mexico over 700 units of Coca-Cola per year, whereas in the United States, and we're no slouch by any stretch of the imagination, we're just over 400. Worldwide, 98. So they have this genetic mutation in their liver. Um, they're consuming a lot of sugar. And of course, we're starting to see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children, which we really should not be seeing. Right. And... One thing I wanted to point out in this review paper is they really heavily focused on fructose. Right. And it, the, the pathway they're discussing is not specific to fructose, though. Is that correct? It, it's going to occur and affect at the downstream byproducts, the three phosphate, the, the triphosphate products of any carbohydrate metabolism. Right. But and their, their main focus, their main vein of research is in fructose specifically. Okay. So... You know, the w one problem I would have with this review and with some of the research is that w when we look at the lipogenesis, the creation of fat from carbohydrates and sparking that process, one thing that's necessary that no one ever discusses in that process is insulin. So if you take a pure fructose load, you actually won't rise. Insulin levels do not go up. And in some cases, they actually go down so you can suppress insulin levels by taking a pure fructose load and at the same time the three phosphate products so this is basically when i say these these triphosphate products basically all carbohydrates glucose and fructose are broken down into these three intermediaries and then that's where inter everything interesting happens once it's at that point the body will decide which way are we going to make atp uh, for the liver are we going to um shuttle that into fatty acid creation or are we going to shuttle that into ketone production so at that level once those byproducts hit that level unless insulin is present 
then the pathway for creating fat, the lipogenic pathway, is actually deactivated. And those, those byproducts will be shifted towards the ketogenic uh, pathway or, through, or to futile cycling, which is basically um, energy is wasted converting one metabolite to another metabolite, and that just happens. So without insulin present, fructose appears to be somewhat benign and in some cases useful. Um, what this study does not discuss or focus is the impact of insulin, which means for this study to be accurate, there would have to be some agent that increases insulin, which is just carbohydrates in general. You know, the, what makes potentially things like Coca-Cola so bad is that they use the equivalent of table sugar. It's high fructose corn syrup, but it's still the same, same composition as table sugar. You've got a high insulin reactive substance, which is the glucose, and you're coupling that with fructose, which is a high production substrate. Uh, so you've got, you, you could have the perfect storm, and that's just from eating, basically ingesting too much sugar, period, as a whole. Well, you, yeah, you do have was a perfect a storm because, you know, if you take, um, Hispa if you look at Caucasian patients versus Hispanic, Mexican-Americans versus uh, non-Hispanic blacks, um, the Hispanic population is going to have higher insulin resistance compared to the Caucasian population. And then the non-Hispanic blacks would be even uh, increase higher amount of insulin resistance. So what would be kind of interesting is if they looked at um, this predisposition in non-Hispanic blacks, I would think it would be much worse. And so, you know, with them being insulin resistant to begin with from a genetic predisposition, that higher insulin level certainly is playing that interplay with, with the sugar and fructose they're getting in their diet. It makes sense from right. what you're saying. Yeah. And then on top of it, they've got a genetic mut mutation that even amplifies it more. The, yeah. Again, this no. research is kind of in its infancy, particularly looking at adiponutrin, but I did do a little bit of extra research and in some animal models, what they're actually finding is you can decrease its expression with fasting, interestingly enough. So if they fasted periodically, that would help to correct Down, this? Possibly. I wouldn't go so far to say that. But in animal models, that's what they are finding. What about, have you seen any with uh, ketogenic? No, diet? no, not okay. at all. This, again, this, is, this research is, is fairly new. Right. And again, you know, in those models, we're, what we're doing is we're circumventing the lipogenic pathway, period. Uh, so, it's, so it's almost a non-issue because in, in those models, uh, if you're fasting or if you're uh, trying to achieve nutritional ketosis, you've just taken everything out of the, the equation that could lead to lipogenesis. I mean, you've taken insulin out of the equation. It is a very powerful regulator of a lot of different things. And one of those is lipogenesis. And that includes in the liver, that includes in fat cells, that even includes triglyceride accumulation in muscles. So, you know, eliminating, again, we'll, we'll say this a thousand times, eliminating the elephant in the room, which is carbohydrates in general, you, you might not see any of these conditions whatsoever, regardless of a genetic predisposition. You know, another population I'd be really interested in looking at is, because I know there's a pretty strong presence here in Arizona, would be the Pimas. Oh, yeah. Have, you dealt, so yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you dealt with, with, with any of those, um, th that subset, Dr. Patel? You know, I really haven't had, I don't really have a large Pima Indian population, unfortunately. So um, I haven't had much experience um, uh, dealing with the population. But yes, I, mean, I would be in 
agreement that it would be another population. It'd be really interesting to look at from a genetic standpoint and see where they stand. And although to go back to um, using a ketogenic diet for a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, it certainly are some interesting preliminary things in literature that I have read, although nothing conclusive, but I will say anecdotally, um, as patients reduce their carbohydrate intake and reduce their insulin exposure, you know, clinically, I do see um, decreases in liver function tests, um, which would sometimes be an indication of fatty infiltration in the liver. So although I don't advocate a ketogenic diet for NASH because I don't think the evidence is there, anecdotally, from a clinical standpoint, I do see improvements in liver function numbers. When they go on the ketogenic diet. Correct. Or even just low carbohydrate. That's right. Yeah. So, well, you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily what we want to add to this because there's a lot of advocates. Uh, Dr. Lustig is one who trashes fructose all the time. And I, you know, I, I used to be on that bandwagon, honestly, and still I started looking at the detailed metabolic pathways of fructose in the liver. And, you know, I, I would say that there's really no evidence there. Uh, to support these claims. And, you know, when somebody like Dr. Lustig is saying, Lustig is saying, well, giving your kid fructose is the same as feeding them alcohol. And he's basing that off of uh, uric acid levels rising. Then at that point, you've kind of got to take that into perspective that they've gone way overboard with their correlations and they're fishing for analogies to scare people. Um, that's when you know there's probably a breakdown in the science somewhere. And I think that breakdown is ignoring the insulogenic component of table sugar. You know, you take out the glucose and maybe all the problems disappear. Um, we, we don't know. We do have a few studies in diabetics where they've given pure fructose loads. And it actually has health benefits. Um, we see a decrease in postprandial lipemia. We see decreased insulin levels. Uh, we don't see lipogenesis. So, you know, to blame stuff on fructose, I think, is at this point in the science is incredibly premature to the point of asinine, really. Tell me how you really feel. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I try to downplay my emotions on the show, obviously. and But, uh, yeah, so uh, I think we've got... We, we definitely, so I, I think that wraps it up. Anybody have any final comments about that? You know, I, I think it's a very important study to show the dangers of too much sugar consumption. And by sugar, I mean uh, specifically table sugar. Because again, we can see with pure glucose loads, we don't see the problems that we see with table sugar loads. It's really that combination of fructose and glucose, which high fructose corn syrups are pretty much an equal mixture of both uh, and they're equivalent metabolically to table sugar. It's that combination that seems to be the perfect storm. And, you know, any carbohydrate that's going to raise insulin levels. I would just say that this, this um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease issue is rampant. You see it every day in the practice. And um, one thing that doesn't really hit home with most patients is that, you know, your most serious complication from having, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is going to be cirrhosis of the liver. And for a lot of patients, that doesn't really register um, because they don't drink alcohol typically, right? So they, you know, they always connect cirrhosis with al excess of alcohol intake. And the sheer fact that they could have cirrhosis based on their diet doesn't really, it, it, it's something that they have to kind of think about and let it sink in. So, right. And, 
You know, speaking of that real quickly, I, I can kind of see the connection there because when you ingest alcohol, it actually shuts off the body's ability to metabolize carbohydrates for energy very effectively, which could then shuttle them through greater lipogenic pathways. Um, I, I'd have to look into that. I'm just kind of speculating, but I could mm-hmm. see kind of the correlation of how that could happen. And, you know, to be honest, a cirrhosis of the liver or anything, you can, what is it? You can have something like 80% of your liver removed or dysfunctional and still feel okay. Yeah. It'll you know, regenerate it, it, too. It'll get bigger again. Right. And it, so it's hard for people to, to even feel the consequences of the fact that maybe 80 or 90% of their liver is dysfunctional. You know, it, it's, it's not easy for them to feel or, or to tell. And then, you know, in, instead somebody tells them, well, you should go on a juicing diet because it'll detox your liver. Um, th- those are the, like liver detox diets are the dumbest things I've ever seen or heard of. Uh, cause the way to detox your liver is to help it get rid of the fat that it's stored. And most of these liver detox diets actually do the opposite. Uh, they'll cause greater storage. I also think it's quite unfortunate and quite sad to actually see adolescents have this. I mean, oh it's, God, it's just, yeah. it's, I think we've discussed this before, just some of the, the children that we see walking around this area in Phoenix, it's, it's pretty depressing, quite frankly. You know, and at some point I feel like it should be criminal. You know, it, it's not that hard to figure out your kids should be eating a little bit better balanced diet than McDonald's, Pop-Tarts, and breakfast cereal all day, every day. You know, that's not really that hard to figure out. And I don't care what dietary recommendations you're going by, even the U.S. food plate. Even by the U.S. food plate, it would be hard to make your kids that sick that fast. Oh, yeah. So, all right. Uh, what's the phrase that every, that every politician always uses, do it for the children. (laughs) So uh, we'll, we'll jump on that bandwagon on this one. Do it for the children. And we've got one more that's really close to my heart. Um, and I think I may take the lead on this one because everybody told me they didn't get a chance to read, read these in detail. Is that, that correct you guys? Or that would be a fair. I read that first article, but I didn't read the other 10 that you sent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, those were all kind of context to, you know, one thing that I always do when I read these studies or I read a particular study, and you'll notice this in my writing, is I don't just talk about that study. I talk about other studies so that you can put it in context or we can make the appropriate assumptions based on what's already known um, instead of just like reading this one study and then making these crazy recommendations. And we've, we've actually got a perfect example of that. Um, I don't want to name names, but Dave Asprey has a very high capacity for doing this. Um, and, you know, this, this is where this argument comes from, or this is where this probably whole topic comes from, is his bulletproof butter is, or his bulletproof coffee is all over the internet. You know, it's like, drink my special microtoxin coffee that may not live up to its claims and microtoxins and put butter in it and you'll be super healthy all the time because, you know, butter has all these magical effects, which... He's got no research to support, uh, unfortunately. And my recommendation, and this is, I've been recommending this since about 2002, is to use heavy whipping cream in your coffee. And I'm very specific about that. I think the butter thing is stupid. Luckily, we have some research now to explain why it's somewhat idiotic, especially when cream will mix with your coffee. Um, But so the article we took this from was on, I can't remember the website, 
But basically, a, a newer study came out that found that um, British people who drink cream in their afternoon tea have a higher propensity for, what was it? Was it obesity or diabetes? I don't remember which. I thought it was cardiovascular no. disease. Cardiovascular disease. Um, and then, so that brought up the entire topic of what should you use in your coffee, you know, whether it's butter, cream, or coconut oil, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it was really taken out of context. For one, they're drinking this cream in the middle of the day um, on a, you know, the British diet is pretty equivalent to the American diet right now. So it's a mixed diet, you've got high insulin loads, you've got that shadow period created by an insulin spike that is going to cause a lot of downstream regulation of fat storage and things like that. And as we saw earlier in ASP, so really the problem might be is they're just on a mixed diet and they're introducing fat at a very poor time. Um, but this, has, this then exploded into a conversation about uh, should you have dairy first thing in the morning? Is it going to make you fat? Everything like that. And so if you dig into some of the epidemiological studies, the, the, the more robust one, there was one in Scandinavia where they looked at about 1,500 people over remember the period like 20 years I believe it was I don't have the paper up at the moment but they looked at the development of central obesity over that time span and then they also looked at dairy consumption and not just dairy but high fat dairy products so they had three categories those who drank or those who utilized high fat dairy products those who tried to utilize medium fat or they didn't have them very often and then those who either used extremely low-fat dairy products or try to avoid dairy products in general. And when they corrected for lifestyle, smoking, you know, all these other things, what they found was at the end of the study, those who had focused on a lot of milk fat had a much smaller probability for developing central obesity. So now we've got an epidemiological study. I'm not saying that's proof of anything because it's not, but it does show a strong correlation that milk fat is not correlating to making us fat. You know, that correlation is not there in that context. And, and then there was another population study that literally showed the same thing. The more milk fat you introduce into the diet, the lower your risk for cardiovascular disease was what they looked at in that study. And you're also specifically talking about some discrepancies between, say, like homogenization and raw milk, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll get, we'll get there in a second. So, what, so putting all that research into context, we can at least eliminate, we can at least, you know, be very, very doubtful that it's milk fat that's causing any problem, cream, in their tea. Um, but the article went further to say, you know, maybe you shouldn't put these dairy products in your coffee because casein can neutralize catechins that are in coffee, which are antioxidants, and they're purportedly have a bunch of health benefits. Um, the problem is when you look up the research for catechins, it's almost all animal-based, and they're on high dosages. And if you look at more general study on antioxidants and dietary anti antioxidants that are um, basically free levels in the blood, we find no health correlations whatsoever. They, it, it seems to be a canard sold to the public to you know sell pomegranate juice and all kinds of antioxidant supplements and try to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables and drink more fruit juice. We literally, 
we literally have no research to back up in any convincing way that antioxidants are that important. Uh, so, you know, the, the question then is how important are the antioxidants in your coffee? And then what are the, what's the possibility for these different milk products to neutralize those antioxidants? And on top of it, uh, a lot of people, especially in the paleo community, won't, won't use cream or even butter in some instances because they're worried about the casein content, which could cause a reaction. So we've got a lot of issues in this paper. And I'm going to boil it down to really simple. You should be using heavy cream in your coffee. And one, one reason is, so have you ever wondered, I'm, I'm sure both of you, oh, I don't know if both of you try it, guys have tried it, but Rocky, I know you, sure, you have for sure. Have you ever been curious why when you put butter in your coffee, it does not mix? But heavy cream obviously mixes perfectly. I've never really yeah. thought about it that the, way, but I guess now that you bring it up. <laughs> well, yeah, I've always been curious because yeah. you know, butter comes from heavy cream. So I'm like, well, why can't you ever get butter to just mix? And it always kind of, you know, the, the couple of times I've tried it because I didn't have heavy cream, it just pisses me off that I can't get that stuff to mix and up. This is coming down to the, the bilayer, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was just so, going to say the protein content right. of, the, of the cream versus the protein versus of the butter. Yeah, the well, glycolipids and... Um, phospholipids that right. are in the cream. And it turns out that in cream, in heavy cream, the fat is trapped within these little globules. Um, so you can think about it about, you know, instead of imagining a solid mass of fat, what you have is fat that would look like um, the little, like a, a big fish tank filled with ping pong balls. It's not one continuous mass of fat. All the fat is trapped within these little balls. And the surface of these balls are what they call the milk fat globule membrane. And they're made up of various components. Uh, one of those, the, one of the highest components is phosphatidylcholine, uh, which is actually really important because it's a precursor to acetylcholine. The body will turn it into acetylcholine, which the brain then needs to fuel itself. So we have a very beneficial component there. Um, but what makes these disperse in liquid is one end will attach to water molecules through hydrogen bonding and the other end will attach to fat molecules. So it allows these globules to pretty much dissolve in anything, fat or water. And that's why cream mixes up better. From a health perspective, uh, they actually have done quite a bit of research on these membranes and the potential health effects if you are ingesting dairy products that still have these membranes intact versus dairy products that do not. Um, and we'll get into which one of those are, but heavy cream, they're, they're all intact. They do have casein bound to them, but for every, let's say you, you have three tablespoons of heavy cream in your coffee in the morning, which I do with decaf or regular coffee. Um, you're getting less than two grams of casein total. And it's bound in these globules, which means it's going to be slowly released as you digest it. I would be very interested to see the histamine reaction to this, if there's any at all. And if you're worried about it, then get your heavy cream from Europe. Um, but, you know, you, you get a lot of benefits because these fats are trapped in these membranes. These membranes are very important. They can be used 
Um, using cream like this can be used for digestive problems, um, can be used for diarrhea. I mean, all kinds of different things. They've actually got a lot of studies in humans where they've used these to treat different things. So milk cream is actually, you know, it is. It's the cream that rises to the top. It is the one of the best components, the fat components. It is the best fat component of milk is cream. Now, what happens when we make butter is the churning process basically destroys all these membranes. So these membranes are wiped out, they've been destroyed, and really all you have is just solid milk fat. Um, so butter, it turns out, is the only dairy product that does not have these beneficial, these known to be beneficial milk fat globule membranes. So of all your choices of what you should put in your coffee in the morning, butter should be at the bottom of your list. If you're on a ketogenic diet looking for the most health benefits, of what you're adding to your coffee. For us, uh, from a taste perspective, I would say it rates fairly low as well. <laughs> what, butter? butter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, heavy cream is so much better in coffee. And this is what I'm talking about from, you know, I talked about earlier in the show is a physiological perspective versus scientific. Um, you can pull some science papers that say butyric acid's healthy for you. You know, it does all these great things in the liver, blah, blah, blah. But how does that relate to the coffee in the morning? You know, one of the real magics, and, and so it sounds scientific, but it's not, you know, the real magic of short chain fatty acids is when they're produced in your intestinal tract by your gut flora. Well, you just circumvented that if you took a lot of butyric acid in the butter, you know, you, you don't get any of those really help this, what I would consider the most important benefits of those short chain fatty acids. And that's having your, your gut bacteria produce them themselves. You, you short circuited that. Um, with the heavy cream, you know, you, you still get a fat load. That's fine. Uh, there's nothing exciting about it. At least with the heavy cream, there are extra nutraceuticals in there that are going to help increase brain function. Um, they're going to help stabilize your digestion. There's, I would say, a low probability. I was digging into the chemistry of these, these surfaces, and the casein that is present is bound pretty tightly in these membranes. So its ability to neutralize catechins is questionable. I would have to actually see, uh, see them add cream to coffee and then analyze the catechin content afterwards, which I did not find. Um, and it mixes with your coffee well. Now, the one thing we would have, let's say you're paleo or you do have an allergy to casein, it turns out that the homogenization process will increase the casein content of those membranes. So ideally, what we really want to find is raw cream, um, which in California, that was easy. I mean, I could go into most grocery stores and grab it. Uh, here in Arizona or Phoenix, I haven't really gone to check that out. Um, maybe the farmer's market might have that. But what you really want to add to your coffee, you want maximum health benefits, the lowest potential of any kind of allergic reaction would be raw cream. Or like you said, European cream. Yeah, or European cream. Um, now, keep in mind, these membranes are very, very stable. They survive pasteurization, which means even regular milk has, has these membranes in it. And they, they did another correlative study of health of individuals based on the content of these um, 
membrane content of the dairy, and they found the strongest correlation when the membranes were intact. So again, butter, from just a pure nutraceutical perspective, butter had the least health benefits. Um, now, everybody knows I'm a fan of butter. When I was a little kid, I used to eat sticks of butter, literally. Um, my mom would open the fridge and find teeth marks in the, in the butter. So butter is an excellent and healthy source of fat. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, in your coffee, if you're going for maximum health benefits, any health benefits at all, you should be using heavy cream and preferably raw cream. I mean, th this whole butter thing is, again, a canard. Um, research wasn't, wasn't backed up. There were just some assumptions made on a couple probably random papers, and that was the end of it. And I, I, you know, I think that was a big disservice because I know a lot of people do their bulletproof coffee. Um, but, you know, there is definitely nothing magical there. Now, the one thing he did do after a podcast with me where I said MCT oils were so important, about a month later, he started recommending putting coconut oil in your coffee as well. Unfortunately, he didn't give me any credit for that. But, you know, you that that is something you could also add that would be beneficial. But, you know, every morning, all I do heavy cream in my coffee. Uh, whether it's decaf because I don't want a lot of caffeine or caffeinated because uh, I want to pick me up, you know, I'm always using cream. And now I understand the science of, you know, why that recommendation does make more sense than butter. You know, to play, okay, uh, as I, I, I like to play devil's enough. advocate often, um, I will say, though, um, when we look at using antioxidants versus polyphenols, because, you know, catechin is a polyphenol, so they act as an antioxidant. Yeah. So, you know, we know that most studies that use antioxidants show no benefit, and in some studies they show harm. So if you're using things like megadoses of vitamin C and vitamin E and these purported antioxidants, the data doesn't really support the use of those as an antioxidant. I, I just actually just sent you guys a paper on um, high concentrations of urinary biomarker polyphenol intake and decreased mortality in older, older adults. This is an epidemiological study, but... I still think that, um, you know, if you're looking at polyphenols, you certainly want to get it from your natural sources. So um, vegetables for sure. Um, if you're on carb night or carb backloading, you can certainly use um, low, glyce low glycemic fruits like berries. Those skins of blueberries tend to have high contents or you can certainly supplement. Um, but there is a little bit of evidence showing that, you know, if you can increase your polyphenol intake and that's where that, re that recommendation for drinking wine every day for cardiovascular right. disease is good for you. Unfortunately, that 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 resveratrol that's in your wine also is accompanied with alcohol. So, um, as I tell patients quite often, but I, I think that um, what's interesting about um, this issue, of the casing and the and the membrane and the mem that the fat globule membrane is really intriguing. And so, um, I, I look forward to reading those other ten papers you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, those just really pinned down um, some of the, the, the surface structural components of those uh, milk fat globule membranes, um, different, different content of different components in them, how you get different casing levels, what dairy products have them in abundance and what don't have them. So, you know, all those papers were just kind of helping to go down the rabbit hole of can we answer this question? What's better, milk, cream, or coffee? And, you know, we can definitely answer the question. You know, raw heavy cream is the best option of the three. Um, again, the question is, 
does it neutralize the catechins? Um, and I don't know. Well, I think also but, not to get caught up in that minutia as well. Correct. I mean, I mean, if yeah, you, if you like, if you like butter in your coffee and if it you, tastes better to you, then I'll be it. Go for it. But yeah, if you yeah. like butter, that's fine. Uh, it's just, you know, my always thing obviously is, you know, you, you really, if you're going to be so adamant about certain recommendations and that, you know, that's the only way to go, you need to have some sort of backing for it. Yeah. Uh, it, it is all I'm really trying to say. Instead of using right. non-correlative research whatsoever to then, you know, say, oh, well, you know, this obviously is going to speed up your metabolism and do this. And, you know, we, we don't know that it's going to do any of that. And I'm not going to claim that putting heavy cream in your coffee is going to speed up your metabolism or make you thinner faster. Uh, it's, it's good. It's a good way to get extra fat in the diet, which you need for nutritional ketosis. And well, A, it's highly palatable. I love drinking that stuff. That might be a little dangerous. Um, but it also gives you, if you do that first thing in the morning, it gives you a nutrient load to break the metabolic fast that you've gone through in the night. And it might take a few hours for that, those fatty acids to get into your system. But, you know, if you had eight hours of sleep, you had your coffee with cream first thing in the morning, you're going to have a nutrient load way before that 12 hour mark that could start to not be so beneficial. Well, all I can say is before I had the podcast, I had a cup of coffee with three, ta three tablespoons of heavy cream in it. So how about that? There you go. Heavy <laughs> cream and, and you know, the coconut oil is fine. I, if, if it's around, I'll throw it in. But, um, that, that's another thing we should, I just want to talk about really, really fast is MCT oil. And this has been brought up before and, you know, Pretty much I'm relating this to because of the bulletproof recommendations and he, he's got this long story about how he came up with this magic formula of C8 and C10 and I think he sold just a C8 MCT oil for a while. You know, blah, 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 all this magic. Well, you know, first of all, you could look at his containers until he just white labeled what's out there on the shelf. There's no magic story. Um, but again, this is, he, he didn't go back and really look at the research to show what he was recommending to people. I recommend MCT oil to athletes because it's easy and they're going to be able to survive the detrimental effects that might occur because C8, high loads of C8, which is just one of the MCT components, can be detrimental. It can, you know, cause fat accumulation in the liver. It can cause uh, cholesterol formation. You know, it's not something that you want to be loading into your diet if you're not an athlete. End of story. What you do want is c tit. C10, which is one of the other components. And had he done the research, C12 is the other super beneficial medium chain triglyceride. And, you know, depending on the literature you read, sometimes C12, which is lauric acid, is included as a medium chain triglyceride. Sometimes it's not. But lauric acid has massive benefits. And I think one reason he didn't come out with a product that has lauric acid is there's nothing out there to white label. Nobody makes a C10, C12 blend. And part of that problem is lauric acid is a white powder. So immediately when you put it into the oil, it starts to cause the oil to turn white and solidify somewhat. That's why coconut oil is not liquid all the time because of its high lauric acid content. Coconut oil is much, 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 much better choice for your source of MCTs than buying an MCT oil. Again, I only recommend the MCT oils to athletes in certain circumstances. The coconut oil is much better way to go. Yeah, and I think lauric acid also has really, really prominent antibacterial properties too. Yeah. 
yeah, it's used in skin creams even. Um, so this is, you know, again, this is where something that was quoted to be scientific wasn't really physiological or well-researched at all. And this, this might seem to be a trashing on Bulletproof, but, you know, there, there's just certain components there that are so ingrained in, the, in that population and are bleeding out into other populations that are not good recommendations. I mean, they're just not. Um, you know, the butter thing is, you know, here or there, but the MCT oil, that could be problematic uh, for people who are not athletic, who are just sitting at home trying to be healthy and lose some body fat. And if they're loading up on the bulletproof MCT oil, well, they're not really, they might be making their liver bulletproof as it goes through cirrhosis. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're not making their health bulletproof. Go for the coconut oil. Nobody has any comments. I just went on a rant and you guys have no, like no commentary. You We're just sheep. So long. It's kind of zoned out. <laughs> You're no devil, no devil's advocate on that one, Rocky. I don't actually, because I think that, um, here's the thing about, you know, just kind of to go to a 50,000 foot view. MCT is more processed than coconut oil. Right. I mean, we always tell patients oh, to, yeah. to, to not eat processed foods. That would be the same for coconut oil. So if you need coconut oil, eat coconut oil. Um, like you said, um, you know, specific target populations may benefit from MCTs. And maybe I might have a tablespoon of MCT oil before I go play soccer after we're done. But, you know, I, I think, like you said, um, it, it, that, that, that overriding um, unprocessed food mantra always tends to win out, right? Yeah. And, and that's when I would recommend the pure MCT oil, either immediately before training or immediately after. Because uh, we're looking for a high influx of ketones if we can get it from those quickly absorbing fatty acids. And, you know, co coconut oil, the reason I don't recommend it is it's just hard to mix. You know, it's really hard to get easily into a shake or, you know, just take a tablespoon of it. Some, some people don't mind. I just don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy it, but that's the way I do it. I just take a tablespoon and spoon it in and... Shot it yeah. down. MCT oil like has no taste. You yeah. Know? That's why I kind of like it to add it to shakes or something like that. It just, yeah. it really has no taste. You know, that, that's a really great pre-workout formula is coffee, heavy cream with some MCT oil. Um, it's going to mix fast the, because of the surface structure of the fat globules in the cream, the MCT is going to emulsify into it pretty cleanly. Um, and it's, it goes down smooth. I find if I have something like just a protein shake with MCT, it, it can upset my stomach a little bit. You I need that extra emulsifying agent. I actually like mixing coconut oil with some unsweetened cocoa powder and then kind of create a, like an almond joy out of that. And, and then I can get my polyphenols as well, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that uh, this is one of our longer shows, but we covered a lot of topics. Um, and we're going to, like I said, try to do this once a month or once every six weeks to just Pick stuff that's out there and either find the research to help back it up or, you know, pick it apart and show you that not necessarily that that's wrong, but that you have options. You've got a lot of other options and some of those options may be better and you may have been misguided for no good reason whatsoever other than, you know, just um, pure preference. Profit. Like, well, and pure profit, of course. You know, although I don't, I don't think there's bulletproof butter, is there? Is not, there a Rocky? No, name? not not yet. Oh, okay, but there there is bulletproof MCT or upgraded MCT oil. And all right, um, unless there's any closing statements from anybody. Nope.
I don't think no. so. All right. That's another episode of Body IO FM. I hope everybody found this educational and maybe a little entertaining. And we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.